0: Good afternoon and welcome to Auto Retail Live in partnership with Lombard. Today we're looking at the future of automotive retail. Chances are you've joined us today because you're interested in how the retail sector is changing and could change and what it means for your business. Our conversation is based on a new report uh, which is launched today from Auto Retail Network, the future of UK auto retailing. And you may well have noticed there is a resources section um, on the webinar at the bottom of your screen. uh, And you can download the executive summary uh, of this new report here and free. Uh, You can also buy the full copy of the report which has uh, all the detail and the data behind it. So, there are a number of key themes that emerge from the research uh, in the report, including uh, agency models, wow, there's a hot topic, Uh, electrification, uh, after sales, finance, business models, and the purpose of our conversation this afternoon is to provide the actionable insight, so something you can take away uh, to help in your planning and business decision making. Uh, We've got 40 minutes of conversation with three players uh, in the retail sector with hands-on experience. Paul Hendy, who is the chief executive of the Hendy Group, 60 dealerships um, spread across the the south, more or less, of the UK, uh, employing more than 1,800 people. Uh, We have Tony Whitehorn, uh, industry consultant, um, senior leader with experience in Renault, Toyota, most recently president and CEO of Hyundai UK. And Richard Hill, uh, head of the automotive and manufacturing sector at NatWest and Lombard. Uh, with a background also in BMW, in Rover Finance, uh, Mannheim and Cox uh, before joining Lombard and Nat West. So lots of topics to get into um, and it's about a, a focus on the next three to five years and the, and the practical activities. Your comments and thoughts, questions, most welcome. Uh, please you can type them in uh, to the dialogue box. They come through to Tristan, our editorial director, uh, and they will come through to us in the webinar. So please Add your comments and questions, and you can follow us also on social media with a hashtag #ARNlive. So let's kick off with electric vehicle adoption. Let's start with electrification, perhaps, and the impact on retailers there as the first topic. Paul, Paul Hendy, welcome. Uh, Paul, how are you set up for the future in terms of retailing uh, of electric vehicles?
1: Afternoon, Al. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for, for having me along. Uh, I, th- I think that the, at the moment we are uh, still in the throes of setting ourselves up for the future. It's fair to say that most dealerships now have electric charging points, sales executives uh, well versed in the various electric models, uh, whether they be hybrid, full electric, battery electric, plug-in hybrid and so on. There's still quite a lot of noise. Uh, around the topic isn't there, but as, as each month passes by and there's greater knowledge uh, being served to us from uh, all manner of sources, I, I think it would be fair to say that we're all getting there. We're all having to get there at a much faster rate, aren't we? Because this is now gathering quite a pace, um, particularly over the last couple of weeks where there was a fuel issue. I don't think there's ever been so many inbound inquiries on electrification as we've we've seen for such a long time. Um, So that really did polarise the minds. But, um, you know, it it is still early days, albeit it really is, as you said, from the outset, a major talking point.
0: Richard, what, what does this impact have in terms of funding for, for for retailers? I mean, how does it affect the costs, for example, to set up a dealer? Paul said that we're on a we're sort of on a a, a glide, a, a growth, but is it is it a big cost? Does it make a difference versus good old internal combustion engines?
2: Well, I think I think there's de- definitely a. Uh, well, good afternoon, by the way, everyone. Good, good, good to be here. Um, there's definitely a transition cost, as there is for the actual uh, users or electric vehicles. Um, and uh, most, I think, a lot of that transition cost is is understood by the OEMs, and the dealers are, are being supported in various ways with that. But it's not an insignificant cost. It's not just a case of putting charge points in um, into, a, into a dealership. Actually, it affects quite quite a significant element of the overall fabric uh, when you get to look at the um, uh, uh, sort of servicing and uh, maintenance side of, of electric vehicles. Um, it is it is quite complex and they, they can be very dangerous. So there's an awful lot of things to t- take into account. Um, the like kind of concur with, with Paul. Really, we're, we're very much on a uh, an, an adoption basis. That adoption needs to be accelerated. We're working very hard within that West Group to support that acceleration at every level, both with our business clients and and retail clients. You May, may be aware uh, we've. Got um, a proposition in place with Octopus Energy to, to help with the adoption at the consumer level uh, and the uh, installation of um, uh, charging points uh, within the domestic and increasingly a bus- business environment. So, adoption is um, relatively slow at the moment, but it needs to increase at pace. And, and I'm sure it will do, but um, uh, there's a lot of people sort of holding off at the moment for, for various reasons.
0: Tony, thinking about this from, from uh, perhaps an OEM perspective, I know you obviously you're, you're an advisor working across the sector, but with long-standing experience at OEM level, how does this change the
3: business model, both at manufacturer and at retailer level? Yeah, Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, Good to be here. Thank you. Fundamentally uh, changes it. Fundamentally changes it. Fundamentally We've had 130 years of an internal combustion engine. And in a very short space of time, the whole fabric is changing within the car itself and the biggest issue is an economic one the reason being is that OEMs fundamentally are not making any money out of electric vehicles now you can therefore understand why OEMs are starting to behave the way they are they are looking in the supply mm-hmm. chain exactly how they can make more money and retrieve that margin that they are losing on the electric on the electric car i, I mean an electric Vehicle, fundamentally, the, the the propulsion part of it is four times more expensive than an internal combustion engine. So when you add all the margins on, you can understand why the margin is so so tight for an OEM. And therefore, they're looking for ways they can make money. Hence, the agency model. We're going to come on to agency model, but but you're
0: saying that the electrification agenda and the transformation is 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 purely on the economics. It's 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 pulling that money back. To, to, to subsidise the development and the manufacture
3: of those products. Okay, so uh, the cost of the um, of an electric vehicle is about four times more. That's the actual propulsion side of it. The battery, compared to a, an engine, is about four times more expensive uh, to produce. Now, because of that, the margins that OEMs are making are dramatically reduced. So, the uh, the OEMs themselves are now looking, how can we make more money because of this? So from an economic point of view, this is not what the OEMs really want. I get the environmental side of it, but not from an economic side of it. And the speed with which it is happening is also hurting the OEMs on their margins. Does that
0: have any impact on on independent businesses, though? Because obviously, from a franchise point of view, yes, it's new vehicles coming through. Does this change the business model from an from an independent perspective as well? Uh, when you say independent, do you mean an independent dealer side? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's the franchise okay. model, which is the new vehicle, and then there's the independent who are trading used vehicles.
3: Okay, okay. Um, When they start trading used vehicles, it's still a little bit of an unknown territory because what's happening on the used electric vehicles is because technology is moving so quickly, people who are buying used, and I'm sure that Paul would agree with this, people who are buying used electric, whilst it's it's interesting and people love it, uh, a lot of those vehicles which are 2 years old are electric vehicles their range is not as good as the new vehicles that are coming to market today today you can get vehicles that can do have a range of 300 miles that wasn't the case to, you know on a used vehicle which is perhaps 2 or 3 years old
0: electrification the, the the driver for change in the future of auto retail this is the basis of a new report from um, auto retail network you can download um, an executive summary of that report um, from the resources section below uh, thoughts and comments most welcome um, please send them in to us or use the hashtag arn live Tony, you, led to, you alluded to something there. I want to go to Paul for this um, in terms of consumer behaviour, because we talked about manufacturer driving the technology and needing more revenue because they're expensive. But, Paul, what's the, what's the consumer, pull? What's the consumer experience? Is there a market there at the moment?
1: Uh, I think there's, there's, there's definitely a market there. We are seeing it, aren't we? The market itself has grown year on year on year on year. Um, whilst it's still only... A small percentage of the overall market. It absolutely is growing, and it is growing faster now than it has done um, in, in, in more recent times. So I think the customer's awareness um, uh, is, is probably at its highest. That um, the, 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 the mm-hmm. that whole agenda um, uh, about you know. the the well-being of the planet uh, and and we can go on about the demonization of the motor car couldn't we? the internal combustion engine Um, electrification is one route to um, cleaning that up for want of an expression I do believe going forward there will be other uh, means whether whether it be uh, decarbonized fuel still going through the internal combustion engine um, or hydrogen um, I still believe that, that you know, we, we, we still have an enormous way to go on this. I know there's, there's a line in the sand in 2030, um, who knows whether that, that line in the sand moves. Um, because quite frankly, we do not have the infrastructure currently in place um, for, for an electrified market of, you know, if it got to 60 or 70% in double quick time, it, it, the, we just couldn't cope with that the infrastructure could not cope with it it's just not there look at the rural areas um you know only 36 percent of people have got a driveway these vehicles need charging and you know um the pace of charging our, our lives um how we how we refuel at the moment takes moments doesn't it and it's 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 very prevalent it's everywhere um charging electric vehicles that may take in some instances Several hours. Yes, some can be speed charged in forty minutes, but not all vehicles. There's such a long way to go with this one, Al. That I think um, we're all getting tooled up for it, quite rightly. But um, uh, and as Richard mentioned, you know that the, even in the dealerships, the, the amount of training we're having to go through um, and the cost of that training um, is, is is massive. So it's a huge mm. subject, but with a long way to go um albeit that um someone's pressing very hard on the accelerator aren't they T-
0: tell me about the, beha- the there's the behavior towards electrification and then there's consumer behavior in general towards retail so let's think about the the the, the change in behavior towards retail uh you know yeah. covid stirred the pot over the last year um and apparently uh, it, this report says that all online sales of goods got up to 36.5%. So, in other words, everything about 36.5% was online uh, in January of this year. It fell back to about 26% in July. But of course, automotive retail in this last 18 months has rocketed in, in its ability to deliver an online experience. Is that continuing as we come out of COVID, Paul?
1: Uh, I, I would say it, it has slowed because now the consumer can go back to um, visiting the physical space. When, when we were in lockdown, Clearly, uh, the only medium we had was online. Uh, You know the adage that I've used, uh, and uh, you and I have talked about this before. Even with in my own business, you know, we we've said internally we moved in ten months where we'd have probably taken ten years. We quite frankly just had to make that. It was a paradigm shift. We had to move our business online overnight. Otherwise, we were completely out of the race. And and the team worked tirelessly to achieve that. Um, So now, where where the customer has got the option to either transact online or come into the physical space, they have a choice. Uh, And because I genuinely believe what we do is provide joy to those customers. Not everybody wants to do that online. They want to come into the business, have that human interaction, enjoy the facilities. The facilities are amazing, aren't they? See and smell the new products uh, and have that whole excitement uh, about the the purchase of, of a new vehicle, whether that's new or used, I hasten to add, it is still a new vehicle to them. So we have seen more of the retail behavior coming back into, um, we call it the traditional model now, wouldn't we? Actually physically coming into the building. Yes, there are still those who want to transact online and that's great too.
0: Tony Whitehorn, experience from OEM, as you said, it's about cost down. Uh, it's about moving forward and, and probably from the OEM taking cost out of the business. But but what does it mean in terms of retailers looking to the future? What should they be expected to do? Paul said, you know, people have progressed rapidly with their digitalisation. But what what else is needed?
3: Yeah, I think that Paul's absolutely right in terms of dealers need to be, uh, we, you know, this is the watchword, the key word is need to be flexible because we are in a position of change. And when you have change, you need to adapt to that change. And I think that, as Paul rightly says, you know, some people want to do some of their um, transaction online an awful lot of them will still want to come into the dealership and it is being able to make that almost a seamless journey. How on earth can a retailer enable somebody to get an experience online and have the self-same experience back in the dealership? That's, that's a real challenge, I think, for um, the dealer network. But at the end of the day, the dealer network is here to stay and it's here to stay because it is able to touch the customer. Uh, and that is a, a big, big benefit that no OEM will ever have the ability to do.
0: Richard, do you see, I mean, because you're thinking about the funding and the financing of these of these organisations, there's this word mobility solutions. You now, Some car companies call themselves mobility providers rather than automotive providers. But do customers want those mobility solutions, whatever they are, rental or scooters or what have you? And are you seeing a pull for that funding being needed to develop that?
2: I think it's very early days when it comes to mobility. But if I sort of put my um, OEM hat on, in terms of let's see what's looking going on in, in that arena, on on a global scale, over the last five ten years, probably five five years actually, um, the scale of investment that OEMs are making in diversifying their their business model, if you like, so you're seeing some big strategic partners and big acquisitions going on, and and and, and all of that is. Um, to develop uh, um, uh, ostensibly a, a mobility proposition, they're not really with us yet. There's a few, you have got some out there. I think Volvo is probably one of the most prominent one at the moment, but um, and, and it's very early days, and they're all deemed as as expensive. Um, but mo- mobility is a is a is a, is a you know, kind of a new new kid on the block, if you like, and uh, um, covers a, a vast area. So if you look at mobility, look at sort of the sort of government's transportation strategies that are coming out. It extends to you know, um, e-bikes and e-scooters. And it's, it's a completely different mix in terms of what everyone's got to think about um, how people want to be mobile go, going forward. Um, how that's going to transition into the, um, the car industry, if I can put it like that, uh, I'm, I'm convinced it will. And, and if you're only going to look at the, the investments the, the OEMs are making, that is yet to come through. And there's so many factors to it. There's the connected vehicles, the connectivity, the digitization of of a lot of these environments. But there's also, um, I think, one thing that's kind of uh, the pandemic has brought to the fore very quickly is just how um, people's lives are changing and and how mobility will play to that. So, um, working from home, a more significant uh, factor these days. And there'll be other factors, and we've got new generations obviously coming through that have a very different view on life. Um, those that've been brought up, you know, from day one with a mobile phone and the way they, the way they um, use that and consider it, um, the acquisition of it, if you like, or the usage of it, there's many, many factors that will, I think. Uh, so, so yes, to answer your question, mobility is going to be a very big game um, in in the near future. Uh, but there's, there's, you know, as I think um, both Paul and Tony, there's, there's, there's room, there's room for a lot of people in this game and um, we're, we're having from, a, from our perspective to take a very broad look at it and, and understand um, how we continue to support um, our existing customers and hopefully new ones that are coming into the market as well.
0: You're watching Auto Retail Live. We're looking uh, at the basis of a new report from um, ARN, the future of UK auto retailing. Um, Lots of interesting discussions. We started with the technology and we've looked at consumer behaviour. But the elephant in the room here is the A word, the agency model. Uh, It's a hot topic. You can read about it uh, on Twitter, on social media and LinkedIn. There are conferences let's drill down into what it actually means if you've got thoughts by the way please do send them in um tristan is collecting the questions and we'll um, come to them uh, in a few minutes but agency model is coming but what does it actually mean i'm going to go to paul first and say paul tell us in you know blunt language as we expect from you what do you think the agency model means for
1: retailers well that depends how blunt you want me to be al um Blunt you know, as you like. We're all grown ups. Well, yeah, it, it's it's a uh, you, you've described it as the elephant in the room and, and a really hot topic. Uh, we're, we're the retailers in in this particular you know tripartite agreement. We, uh, it'd be interesting to hear what the customers actually want to do. That would be a thought, wouldn't it? Um, and of course, we've got the OEMs who are going to set the pace, set the agenda. By set the pace, I mean um, we have not seen yet um, a definitive agency model agreement from any of our OEMs. Um, We've got 20, 21 of them. Um, I'm intrigued to know whether there'll be one agency agreement or whether each OEM will design its own different uh, agency agreement. There's a thought. Uh, And of course, as the retailers, we will then do what we normally do, which is um, digest that and uh, find a way to run our business and uh, make sure that at the end of it, we provide all the joy that those customers so richly deserve, who give us the privilege of their business. So uh, we've only been retailing motorcars now for 150 years. Um, I think we're pretty good at it. And I don't just mean ourselves, I mean us as retailers. It's probably time for us as retailers to to stand up and be really proud of that fact. Uh, Look just how well we coped during the pandemic uh, as a body to not only look after our customers, but look after our colleagues. So I think we're a really big, uh, important piece of this jigsaw. And um, when it comes to it, we, we need to make sure that we have a voice and that we absolutely play our part in whatever that future may look like.
0: Do you have a sense, though, of what it may be? I mean, there's, there's so much speculation. I know, as you say, you haven't received anything definitive, but this perception this is that you get a fee, a lead will be fed in, and then you'll deliver it. it, it is, do you have a sense of it?
1: Yeah, there'll be a handling fee. Uh, who knows if that handling fee will be appropriate. Uh, we're still under significant uh, pressure as retailers to provide facilities at great expense um, to, to make the brand experience as it should be uh, for our customers, a fantastic experience. So we make significant investments in our bricks and mortar uh, and I still believe they do have a place. So, whatever that agency fee is, it absolutely has to be appropriate and reflect the costs, the risks that we take. Uh, there's a part exchange involved more often than not. Um, there's then the ownership of that customer. By ownership, I mean, you know, who has title to them. We've got GDPR, we've got regulation going on everywhere, haven't we? And it really is uh, this is not clear cut, in my opinion. And uh, as a retailer, And with a lot of customers and a lot of colleagues, uh, we've got to make sure we're doing the very best thing here for everybody. Tony, let me play this off you. So, obviously, with an OEM background, you
0: said quite clearly at the start of, of our conversation this afternoon, money is a driver here. The manufacturer is looking to save money or take money out of the mix. So, if the manufacturer is trying to save money, Paul's explained that there's cost involved in retailing. So, if the manufacturer perceives well i'll give a an amount of money to the retailer somebody still somewhere has got to pay for all those things that an agent
3: doesn't provide
0: how does it work tony
3: yeah okay i mean uh, let's just understand why it's happening as i said previously this is oem driven this is down by the oem to say i need to make more margin they've looked at their tier ones tier twos they've slashed as much as they can and now they've looked at the retailer and they say look there's Circa 15% there, let's say, 15% there. Let's take some of that away so we can keep some of that back to our margin and just give everybody a handling charge. So that's the background to what it is uh, as to why it's happening and why it's happening now. Let's understand what agency actually means. Um, agency means who has title to the customer now. Uh, under the franchise model, the title uh, of the, the who owns the customer is the dealer. Under the agency model, The person who owns the customer is the oem stroke nsc that's it that's the big difference um and uh the in order to do that all the stock now is go under agency model will be owned by the oem all the marketing uh will be owned by the oem the um the franchise dealer uh retailer all they essentially, what they should be doing is handing the vehicle over and they get a handling charge for that. That is the route. In terms of the risks, and this is the big thing, um, the, the, the actual ele- the actual words say that the agency must not bear any or only insignificant risks. That's what the words say in an agency model. Uh, and the whole idea of that is that um, the, the agents, the agent themselves are essentially handing the vehicle over. That's the background to it all. And in doing that, they will reduce their risk, but reduce their margin available. So that's that's how it, it looks in terms of the, the overall um, perspective of the, the business model itself. Um, w- will it work and how will it work? Um, I, picking up your point, will there be different uh, agency agreements? I think initially there will be. Uh, But I think that eventually, as with most franchise agreements today, they will gradually be honed into very similar agency agreements.
0: Richard Hill, this this is about money, because it's business at the end of the day, and and the pressure that's driving this is to save costs for the OEM potentially. But you've got a retail network, which I'm sure you're funding part of, who are building big premises that suddenly potentially the manufacturer is now going to have to take responsibility. If you follow Tony's logic that says the agent bears none of that cost, how did earth do you unpick that?
2: Yeah, Very good question. Um, and I think, um, as with any journey at the moment, unfortunately we live in a world now where journeys happen very, very quickly. Um, <clears throat> this is something that we've got to... Um, we've all got skin in the game at the end of the day, um, whether it be a lender like ourselves... Uh, the dealer, the, the manufacturer, and many other stakeholders uh, uh, around um, around the model as well. And um, I think the only way that one could say it, we work really well collaboratively. We saw back in sort of two thousand eight, nine, and ten, when there was a financial collapse. Um, this industry stood up really well and worked its way through that um, exceptionally well. Um, as already said, um, this industry has worked its way really well through a pandemic, better than most. I mean, one thing I get to see in the position I'm in in many sectors, and um, I have to say the automotive sector often through its sort of um, agility, its flexibility, and its entrepreneurialism steps up time and time again to overcome sort of headwinds, challenges, What are you going to describe. Agency is um, uh, complex, to say the least, and uh, it's going to take a lot of working through if it, if it happens. Um, but we have to do this collaboratively because if, if OEMs or any element of, um, or any stakeholder uh, rocks the boat too much, um, all the cards will fall down. and Nobody wants that and nobody needs that. So we have to work really closely with each, each element um, that, that is involved. Confidence around the business model is critical. And, um, uh, and the OEMs, they, they, they know that. We work closely with them and, and they know that. They can't afford and nor would they want to um, uh, have a collapse in any shape or form.
0: See, This is a lively discussion and, and it very quickly moves from a concept um, into the detail, and, and the detail matters because of the size of the sums involved. Comments and questions more than welcome. Please do share them with us um, and we will uh, bring them to you as part of the discussion. Paul, um, I'd like to come back to you because, Interesting in the report that's launched today, the, the auto retail live report, there's a case study um, in the report there from um, South Africa looking at an example of how um, auto uh, agency model um, has worked and, and, and it's worth reading that. But, but one of the learnings or one of the conversation points, Paul, is the fact that if you've got a fixed revenue for um, selling or, or producing or, or passing or fulfilling a lead you're going to have to make your money out of used, and that may change your approach to the property that you have. Currently, you're perhaps focused as a franchise retailer in the new environment, but if your money comes from actually selling used vehicles, is that going to change your thinking about your locations and how you uh, run your business?
1: Uh, Absolutely, it could. And whilst our group is particularly strong in the used car market and our business is heavily configured in that that way, other retailers who may be in, in city centres, where property is, is expensive, where their physical premises is constrained, where the manufacturer has, has asked that they put up uh, uh, an incredibly big building, shiny, all singing, all dancing, uh, to, to suddenly move your business into you know, another two or three acres of, of a used car centre in the middle of, of a city could be incredibly expensive. I think the thing is, you know, we've got our businesses configured in such a way, some, some of these premises may be freehold, some of these businesses may be into a 10 or a 15 or a 20 year lease. You know, And if we're going to make decisions now that affect the next two, three, four, five years, the, the retailer um, really does need a, a sense of direction because uh, as we start to commit things around our property portfolios, You know, they're very, very big calls that we have to make. And uh, yeah, I I just uh, personally, uh, uh, if it isn't isn't broken, then leave it alone. But um, there you go. I've probably told you how I feel about it there. I think we've probably got a rough flavour. Yeah, absolutely. But maybe next time you could be more direct. But yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Well, you
1: know, um, Tony, we've got, we got, we got massive investments. Al, we have massive, massive investments yes. in, in in the physical space. We have massive investments in our colleagues and our in their training. We've got massive, massive ex- amounts of experience. of how to handle customers, and you know. Uh, it, it, it just has to work. I think Richard hit the nail on the head. There are a number of stakeholders uh, in this, not just the OEMs, not just, not just the retailers. There are other stakeholders, uh, the banks themselves. And, and another key stakeholder in the whole of this is the customer. And we must not forget what they want.
0: Customer was was supposed to be at the heart of another aspect of the future, which is block exemption. This was was all set up um, to provide protection, uh, in theory, exemption from the block of European regulations to ensure that because they were safety-critical goods, they would be sold in a a way that they were supported. Tony Whitehorn, I mean, we've got the current block exemption, which now we've left um, the EU, um, we've piggybacked on. So that runs through until... Um, 2023 what should retailers be thinking about if anything in in that run up to it because we've already had a couple of manufacturers that have said right we're giving notice
3: yeah I, i think that um the block exemption is one part of it. I think the agency model is another part of it. I think that the the block exemption has got to take that into account. Uh, talking with the SMNT, um, they can't see a lot of change that will happen with the block exemption, interestingly enough, uh, moving forward. Um, uh, should he be concerned about the block exemption? My view at this moment in time, probably not. Um, it is a little way off. Uh, I think, as well, that people are just unsure as to how things are going to unfold. To be honest, um, you know, picking up some of Paul's points, I think there needs to be much more debate between the um, NSCs and the uh, the franchise network about how how the let's let's call it the agency model, the agency type model, is going to unfold. That that direction is going to happen in one guise or other, and there's got to be a partnership between the two of them. Let's understand this. Under the agency model, uh, this means that the OEM-nsc (stroke is going to be talking directly to customers, doing marketing directly to customers. That is not the core competency of an NSC. They don't do that. They wholesale vehicles. So all of a sudden, all the things that the dealer's good at is now being jettisoned over to the NSC. Honestly, that's going to be a major, major issue. So picking up that point, you know, what about the customer? Actually, the NSC is supposed to be now marketing and talking directly to the customer. That's not what they do today. That's what the dealer networks do- has to do. So there has to be this this, this convergence between the, 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 the two. So coming back to the block exemption, I think that that is something that is sort of gradually going to happen. But I think that this discussion about the agency model and that relationship between the dealer and the, uh, the NSC is the key element moving forward.
0: Tony, put, put, put some money on it then, put a fiver on it. Is this going to go ahead and we're going to have an agency model or is it, is it going to get to the point where they go, you know what, actually now it sounded like a good idea, but when it comes
3: to it, maybe not. Okay, let's just understand who's pushing this. The people who are pushing this are the regional offices. So they're the global, the people in Frankfurt, the uh, Belgium, uh, wherever it happens to be, the, the global or the regional office, because they, they just looked at it from a, an ivory tower perspective and go, oh, where's this margin? Oh, there's margin there in the retailer. We'll have some of that. Um, so that's who's pushing it. I took a lot to the NSCs in the UK, and the NSCs are going, we're not quite, it's a nice idea, but we're not quite sure how to implement this. Because they realize that all of a sudden, their balance sheet is going to be stacked full of stock, which historically has been pushed out to the dealer network. That's one big issue they've got. So, they now take responsibility for stock. Secondly, they take responsibility for all the marketing, for driving customers into the dealerships. And also for that um, CRM perspective as well. They don't do those things. That's not what, as I said before, that's not what the NSC does. That's what the dealer does. So there's a big transition here. Will it happen? Actually, it will happen. It will happen because it's being driven by the OEM, not by the NSC. Mm.
0: So much to talk about and so many questions coming in. Thank you very much for all your comments and questions that are coming through. We'll start to work through them now. Um, And you can also join in with the hashtag ARNLive. Um, The background to this conversation, of course, is in the report, and you can download it a copy of the executive summary free of charge, um, and the full report is also available. Um, first question, Mark Jones from, from Pentriath Automotive. Um, it's, there's more to the question than might seem on the surface, so I'm going to go to Paul first. Under an agency model, is there an expectation of a significant drop, drop in retail prices of new cars? If so, how much? And have any manufacturers tried it elsewhere, or is it imminent? Paul, do you think prices are going to come down?
1: no no I think they'll try and see price uh, rise I don't see because uh, they're, they're taking the margin uh, the, the, that dealer margin away that that'll be reflected in a reduction in price at all I think w- with inflation around the corner I think the prices will certainly go up I don't think I don't think there's any incentive for the OEMs to drop the prices I don't see that Tony probably be better uh, place to answer it than me but I certainly am not expecting that no. So,
3: it's a no from, from retail. Tony,
0: with OEM experience and other, what are your thoughts?
3: He's absolutely right. I mean, why would you? You're you're an, you're an OEM. You've just... The, the reason you're doing all of this is to get money back. So, therefore, what you're doing is you're you're basically taking the margin, which historically was the dealer's. But with that, you are taking the risk. So, Paul's absolutely right. There won't be any drop in prices at all.
0: OK, things are going to stay. Richard, obviously, looking at the numbers, do um, you, you see this as a... Uh, is it going to solve the problem that um, Tony proposes? Manufacturers need to retain more money to pay for these expensive products. Is it it going to work?
2: I think uh, uh, for sure. When when the manufacturers are having to pivot their business model, which has been in place for uh, over 100 years, in in a very short period of time, um, as I alluded to, the the scale of investment they're having to make in um, their product, the supply chain and all that comes with that, is vast, but they're also spending huge amounts of money in changing their business model, along with that you mentioned mobility as well. So I think I think cost clearly and getting some margin back is is probably one driver, but um, may, maybe to be a little bit contentious is, I think the OEMs probably have a bigger plan afoot also in terms of potentially customer ownership. Um, and I think that's probably a major driver also, within all of these factors, and um, uh, the challenges there are, are how, how that will ultimately shake out with moving from one business model to another. With, I mean, you're just talking about sort of we talk about auto retail, which is obviously the focus here, but we've got a you know, huge rental market, huge contract hire markets, and leasing markets, and. Obviously, banks have um, uh, a big interest, we've got billions out to, out to um, the auto retail sector, as we have with other elements. So um, you know, from, from, from our perspective alone, um, you know, this is this really interesting developments going on. But uh, if you look at any walk of life at the moment, um, things have changed uh, unbelievably over the last 5, 10, 15 years. And that, that pace of change will is only set to increase, so never say never. Um, and I think one has to have a really wide radar at the moment as to what the the, the the art of the possible might be. So, um, yeah, it's, com- it's complex, and how we work through it is is going to be a real challenge.
0: Quick fire round uh, to Tony. Clifford Johnson from Loughbrook Kia and Andrew Moresmith from Bourne Road Garage, both same question. Uh, how will workshops and after-sales operate under an
3: agency system? Okay, exactly the same as now. Um, there's no difference on, on, on that. And, in fact, that's where the focus should be. It's very much on the after-sales side of the business.
0: Mm. Okay. Alan McIntosh from the John Clark Group. Uh, Paul, have a go at this. Does UK agency law still follow that of the EU, or might UK agreements differ? We've had a slight conversation on that. What's your perspective, Paul?
1: Uh, I think we'll just have to hopefully do what suits the UK. I don't see us being as aligned to the EU uh, on those matters now. So, we, again, we've got to fight the good fight for a good selves, haven't we? I hope. Yeah. Uh, Tony, any comment to that from your experience
0: across other markets? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, I do some work for the guys in Europe. And, um, and certainly when I'm talking to the SMMT, at this moment in time, the SMT are very much saying we will probably still do what the EU does, because I don't think there's going to be a lot of change to block exemption moving forward. Um, so, I, you know, there might be some nuances, but fundamentally, uh, there is a belief in the, in the whole industry that we will be very similar to what goes on in the EU.
0: Mm. slightly slightly off topic but it's still to do with um, retail quick fire one to you Richard from Jonathan Moritz from, um, from Hendy Automotive um, what's the view on the UK's ability to generate sufficient electricity to an allow for an all EV market perhaps just a, a brief comment there Richard
2: uh, I'm certainly no expert on it but uh, we, do, we do an awful lot of work around climate um, uh, it would help if we had a few more windy days I think uh, and um, uh, I think there's a lot of investment going into infrastructure uh, and, and um, self-sufficiency, and, and uh, definitely green energy. So um, it's working progress, and as we've seen very recently, the uh, you know, putting aside the the challenges in the in the energy market, um, the government have made some very significant announcements very recently around how it's uh, going to go green with its. Um, uh, Energy generation, um, and um, I, you have know, got to believe we'll get there because it's really important that we do. Do um, a lot of things are going to be electrified, um, or even if you go sort of the hydrogen way, it requires a lot of a lot of energy input, and that energy needs to be green. Uh, we're, we're we're major sponsors of COP twenty uh, six, which is taking place in, in a few weeks' time, and uh, it's it's a subject that's very close to our hearts, and uh, we we need this country the world needs to, uh for energy to be um uh green and clean at the end of the day so um it has to happen and um i think the uk are too too, too far behind the uh, uh the race to do that in fact i think actually the uk has a really good opportunity to, to um be one of the top countries in the world to to, to achieve its aspirations around this it's, it's a great opportunity
0: Positive vibes. Thank you, Richard. Tony, quick one on back to commercials. From Connell Lavery from Real World Analytics. Tony, under an agency model, how will the KPIs, key performance indicators, change for sales of new vehicles? Is that an easy question to answer?
3: Oh. Well, I'm, I fundamentally, it's really interesting because um, so Mercedes uh, did the has done the agency model in Sweden. And uh, they put a load of KPIs in at the very outset, and guess what? They kept changing them, um, and all of a sudden they put some, you know, targets in, which wasn't what they anticipated doing. So I, I see that at the end of the day, um, the the key thing for uh, for OEMs is still going to be uh, volume of sales, uh, and that's going to be. Uh, a big part of it, but also some degree of CSI as well. How well are those customers going to be uh, going to be looked after? Because at the end of the day, those are th- those customers are now um, being owned by the OEM, and they want to make sure that the handover was a good experience. So I can still see volume being a, a, a big KPI, but also the, the the CSI is going to be a big part of it as well.
0: Conversation has barely started, but our time is almost done. Mm -hmm. As is tradition, uh, we take a quick tour around our panelists of a practical piece of advice to implement from today's session. Uh, don't forget, you can download the Executive Summary by clicking in the Resources section here. You can uh, purchase the the full report, uh, including case studies and data from uh, the UK and other markets. But let's go to Paul first of all. Paul Hendy, uh, thank you for joining us, by the way. It's your wife's birthday today, so we really appreciate you being with us today. What's your tip to take away from today's webinar?
1: Don't work on your wife's birthday. No, uh, it's true. <laughs> Uh, I, I, look, I think as retailers, we should be really proud of, of the way that we uh, demonstrate on an ongoing basis the entrepreneurial spirit that has been alive and kicking for 100 years. There, there isn't just one thing coming at us at the moment, Al, is there? There's several. We've only touched on three or four of the topics today. Each of those topics could have could have filled uh, an entire day's conversation couldn't it? And I and I think when you when you start to look at it like that, and you start to realise just how much there is going on in our businesses these days, as well as running the business today. Um, all I'd say to those retailers is is you know you've got to keep looking to the future, concentrate on what you're doing today, but 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 be nimble enough uh, to move your business into whatever space it it, it needs to needs to go into because. There is just such a lot on on today's agenda, isn't there? And it's it's never a dull moment in the motor trade.
0: Chief Executive of Hendy
1: Group, Paul Hendy, thank you. Richard uh, Hill,
0: Head of Automotive and Manufacturing Sector for NatWest and Lombard. What's your takeaway today?
2: Well, I think oh, well, first of all, uh, get get the report. Um, it's a it's a, as we've been describing. The world is very complex in and around. Uh, auto-retail and, and uh, vehicle manufacturing and, and the wider industry so, and what's really good about the report it brings a lot of these factors and goes into depth on them and, and my, my, my recommendation would be to um, do get a, a wider perspective of what's going on um, in the new in the automotive in, in industry because um, it's widening all the time there's new stakeholders coming into play there's uh, new countries potentially want to come and come and play in, in our arena with di- different models and um, explore with explore with your um, employees and with your customers, maybe, in terms of um, uh, understanding what's coming about, what potentially is coming out. Because I'm sure um, that'd be a great motivator, and we have some great ideas that will come out on the table. And um, I think perhaps in five years time, when we do another one of these, um, uh, I'm sure everyone is currently involved in the industry and good at what they do, um, will also be uh, uh, having a. a equally prosperous time but their business models might be very different
3: tony whitehorn final word yeah i i think that flexibility is the key thing for the business um and a practical point to take away uh and i tell this to not talking to lots of retailers about this and that is the point of handover because under the agency model you will still be handing the vehicle over even though you may not Um, own the customer. But if you can do a great handover, they will come back to you and you're going to be making money out of the used car and the after sales. So I would actually focus much more than you've ever done before on the handover of the new and the used vehicle, because your profit's going to come very much from the after sales and the used car side of the business.
0: From our panellists and to you, thank you for joining us as we now go for our own handover, back to the rest of your day. Thank you for taking time to join Auto Retail Live in partnership with Lombard. Uh, And don't forget, you can get a free exec summary or you can uh, subscribe for the full report. This has been Auto Retail Live on behalf of uh, Tristan and the team at ARM.
1: Thanks for joining us.